Hey everyone, how are y'all? The beginning of school and everything treating you well for those of you who have kids and those of your students know you don't like it already? I loved going back. There you go. Yeah, school. I loved going back to school. I loved it for a couple days. And, then, <laughs> and that was it. Man, it's good to be here this morning. I am. Um, I don't know, I feel like I should confess this. For those of you who don't know, I had spinal fusion surgery four weeks ago. And so, woohoo, yeah. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Um, how many of y'all have ever done that? Do you have a back surgery? It's awesome, right? Yeah. I, they say it's a roll of the dice, but I feel pretty good. So here I am, exciting. Um, welcome, everyone. If you're visiting today, thank you for being here. Um, We've said this a million times, but I think visiting a church for the first time is the weirdest thing in the world, and I would like rather poke myself in the eye with a fork than visit a church for the first time, and so I hope you feel at home here, at least relaxed enough to, to whatever you need to feel, uh, but you're, just know you're welcome here, and we're glad you gave us a, a shot this morning to share a Sunday morning with us, and those of you here who come every week, thank you, because you guys are awesome, and uh, we are, for those of you who don't know, we're in the middle of a study, a book of Acts. The last uh, handful of weeks, Jason taught and Trey taught and just, uh, man, a phenomenal job. Unbelievable. If you, if you were not able to hear the last couple of weeks, you need to go listen to it online. Just kind of catch up to where we are, uh, especially last week, Jason. That was phenomenal. Thank you for out of, Acts, out of Acts 16. We're in Acts 17 today, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll also have the screen, uh, the print there. So I just want to read the scripture first, and then we'll kind of back up and... Um, Take a look at what it's saying to us today, all right? Starting in verse 1, it says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they had come to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three days, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a quite few prominent women, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters in the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house and said, you're not this Jason, different Jason. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they, not, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others postponed. And let them go. Let's pray. And God, just super thankful this morning for everyone here. When I think about all of our, our stories, our journeys, and things going on in our lives, and that you would bring us into one space to be able to maybe to sing together, take communion together, learn from you. Um, God, each of us, we come here with so much baggage and so many weird things in our lives and shortcomings and but also some great victories. And, but we just come here together, and we want to we draw closer to you. We want to learn from your word. Um, and so we just pray that you would move in this time, that you would meet us here, that you would surpass any word that I can say, and that you would make it personal, that we would understand uh, more than anything your love for us. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. So we know the book of Acts. It's, uh, it's a great storyline. It's written by Luke. It's kind of the what's next to the Gospels. It chronicles the life of the apostles, and especially in the first eight uh, chapters. And the second half really is about Saul's life. In Acts 9, it, we, we learned about Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And if you remember Saul, Saul was the guy who led the murderous threats against Christians. So he had a huge transformation from let's kill all the Christians to they're right. Let's tell everybody about Jesus. That's a pretty dramatic change. And in this, in this day and culture, and every, I mean, it was about as dramatic as it could possibly be. But God used him in amazing ways, as, as uh, Jason mentioned, that um, one of the interesting things about Paul was that he was a Roman citizen. His dad was a Roman citizen. So not only did he claim to be, in, I, I quote, a Jew's Jew, he, he followed the, the law to the letter uh, as far as Judaism was concerned, he was also a Roman citizen, which gave him some interest. It was an interesting dynamic as he went into places where uh, the Jewish leaders wanted to condemn him because as a Roman citizen, that would get them in a lot of trouble. And so there was some interesting dynamic that happened with that that we spoke about. Uh, he took three primary missionary journeys. And uh, Acts, uh, and the second journey is what he's on. Acts 15 through 18 is describing the second journey, which is a really long journey compared to the first one he took. All as a missionary, he went out. And so Acts 17 finds us right in the middle of that. Um, uh, that second journey started in Syrian Antioch, which is on the border of modern-day Syria and, and Turkey. Right, And then he went back to his t- hometown of Tarsus into Asia Minor, then went into Europe, which was Macedonia, where he went to Philipp- uh, Philippi and Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece, to Athens. You see my map? I'm doing this map, but I'm, I'm backwards. So to Athens, down in, we know where Athens is, to Corinth, back to Ephesus in, in Asia Minor, across the Mediterranean Sea, went into Caesarea, Jerusalem, Damascus, before returning to Antioch. So this was a three-year journey. And we pick up uh, our story in Acts 17. Uh, we pick him up in Thessalonica. Um, and so, do you recognize any of these city names? That any of these cities that he's visited, like, um, like Philippi and Th- Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus, do they sound familiar to you? What, why do they sound familiar to us? Because Why? Because there are other books of the Bible. So it's really important for us to remember that Paul's on this journey and he's bringing the gospel to these places and he's having all of these experiences and people are coming to faith. And then later, the, the uh, letters that we read in the New Testament, the, many, the, the letters, the epistles of Paul, are letters back to these, the church in these cities, in these communities where he was at. So these are very important trips. These are where these relationships are made. And so as we look back, even in the future, we'll probably jump into potentially some of the, the epistles of Paul after we get done with Acts. Um, it would make sense it, as we consider that to be thinking about what's going on here. Why is he writing these things? And what is significance uh, in uh, this moment? And I love last week, Please, if you haven't had the opportunity to hear it, go back and listen to what Jason shared out of Acts 16 when he was in Philippi. Um, and the thing that I love what, Je- what Jason said, in Acts 16, it kind of gives the basis for what we're talking about today. He said that we begin to see what happens when the gospel infiltrates a society. And I love the word infiltrates. I think it's a perfect word because when I think of something infiltrating, it's almost like something, it's just what happens when something happens from the inside out. Does that make sense? It's like... It doesn't just cross the borders, but somehow it infiltrates at the core, 
and then it moves from the inside out. It, it reminds me of almost every revolution or every movement we've seen in, in culture where it kind of bubbles up from the people, you know? And so it's something very, very significant. And we talked about the idea of freedom. Now come back to the idea of freedom, but that, that, that fruit of freedom is the evidence of the gospel. The, the true evidence of the gospel at work is this fruit of, of freedom. But also something that's interesting in there is that you almost always see the movement of the gospel working from the inside out. Even in a city or in a country or in a person, it, it seems to take root. The, the real gospel seems to take root in a place sometimes you can't even describe. And then it begins to, to move its, its way out. And it bubbles up from beneath. And that's where that freedom comes from. Your words, when Jason asked you, about what is the fruit of the gospel in our lives. These are the words that, that I heard that you guys said, that you, you experience grace and humility and forgiveness and peace and joy and transformation and love and compassion and then ultimately this community or this gospel community that is marked by restoration and renewal. Those words that started so small in, in personal grace, humility, forgiveness, peace, joy, turns outside, transformation, love, compassion, gospel community. It's amazing how that works. And in one word, the good news is that it's all about freedom. Um, kind of wanted to close with this thought, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you this now so I'll have a clunky ending. <laughs> I think we really struggle. I think one of the greatest struggles in the church today is to experience the fullness of Christ, to experience the fullness of what freedom in Christ means, to really believe that when he says there's no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ, that we can really believe that and take that to heart. So my hope is today, if you hear anything, that you would be reminded and hear that you are forgiven in Christ and that you are worthy in Christ. You are declared perfect in Christ. And God's desire and his dream for you is to live in joy and in peace and in freedom. And my prayer is that you will really claim that for your life. And you would really believe that. Because in that place, we're able to move on from all that stuff. And then begin to move into living for the kingdom. To where other people begin to see that in you. And they begin to see that hope. Then the church begins to rise from the people. Right? So that's, that's my prayer. That's my thought. Well, let's just close. I'm done. No. <laughs> People are always set free by good news. In fact, Scripture says it's for freedom's sake that you are set free. So this is the truth, that when the gospel is properly applied to a certain situation, that the result is freedom. When the gospel works in something, the result is Forgiveness, the result is grace, the result is healing, the result is, is redemption. So one of the things I love that Jason said is that when we see the opposite of that, we can either be sure that it's not the gospel at work, or maybe we are misapplying the gospel in that thing. I think, but listen, both for ourselves and for others, you hear that? So when division and condemnation and bondage are the result, we are in prison, it's quite possibly either the gospel is not at work or we are applying it wrong. So here, this is where we pick up in Acts 
chapter 17. We see literally and physically this example of Paul being freed through the power of the Holy Spirit and God moving and then others stepping into faith and seeing this. And then here is Paul and his companions. They're going to this next town. And they went into the synagogue and he taught three Sabbath days. And it tells us that he reasoned with them from scriptures. He explained and he provided evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead as a sacrifice for us. And he was proclaiming that he was the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for, right? And that some believed him, but others, they became jealous. Some got it, some didn't. That's a great mystery to me. I think the spirit moves in different ways. I think depending on our, how we've been raised and what's going on, I, I know God can do anything, but it's a mystery to me on how the scripture says, whoever has ears, let them hear. But also it talks about some were hearing but never perceiving. And so I have to look at this and think it's pretty important for us. Maybe our journey um, is a lot about learning to understand truth. And learning to be able to hear something or see something and study something and go, you know what, that resonates. That resonates with something deeper than just, hey, let's go with that, you know? Or everybody else thinks that, so let's just do that. Um, that there has to be a truth, um, even in a world when so many people disagree. We could have uh, somebody study scripture for 20 years and land here, and the same per- a different person study the same scripture for 20 years and land somewhere else. Well, what do we do with that? It gets awfully confusing many times. Uh, as believers. And I think if we keep reading this scripture, so some of them heard it, some of them didn't. Jason got in trouble. They slipped them away. Verse 10, it picks up. It says, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away. On arriving, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And now the Berean Jews were more of noble character than those in Thessalonica. So there was a little bias in the writing here from, from Luke. He said, obviously, they were more noble in character because they liked us. For they, and he goes on, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Uh, see, we're not just instructed just to believe whatever just someone says, just because. They went in, they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see, they, they tested, looked into scripture to see if what he said was true. As a result, as a result of this posture and attitude and the work that they did, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. I think chapter 17 is kind of a workshop on how we find truth. It gives us some real instruction here. So in Thessalonica, uh, do you remember at the beginning, the first part, do you remember what happened to those who did not believe? I think it's in... Verse 5. Does anybody remember? Is that, we have a scripture? Do you remember what happened, those who didn't believe? What, what happened first? It was, a, it was an emotion they had. They got jealous. They got jealous. So the hyper-religious people were threatened by what he was saying, and their first feeling was jealousy. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were having a, a debate on doctrine or theology with someone and someone proclaimed something, and your first feeling was jealousy, is that at least a red flag for you that maybe something's off? I think it's interesting how we can get in an argument with someone or a reason or struggle with the, with the scripture, and we can have all these emotions that are obviously not 
of the spirit and not recognize that maybe we're in the flesh arguing or trying to reason at times. But the first thing they did was they got jealous and the second thing they did was, was, was they started a mob. They got everybody in with them. They got jealous, mad, angry, and started talking to everybody else. Don't you think he's wrong? Let's get this guy. Whatever. But in the next town, what happened? It says four things. First, they received the message. They listened. And I think listening, when Jesus talks about for those who have ears, let them hear, it, there's, it's different than just, you ever talk to someone and it's just like you're, they're staring at you and nodding, but you could just tell they're not hearing anything? You know, like in one ear and out the other. It's just like, hello, nice talk. Jen says that to me whenever I I do that to her accidentally. She's like, nice talk. And I'm like, ugh. Whenever I hear nice talk, I know I'm in trouble. I'm like, what did I just miss? Um, But they listened. They received received the messages. That's a posture of listening. That's the intent of listening with the expectation that something is to be learned. With the expectation that something is, is coming that is necessary for their lives, that, that they need to understand. So they listen, they receive the message, the first thing. When I'm in an argument with someone, the first thing I'm doing is waiting for them to take a breath so I can talk. I'm not listening to them in that moment. If I find myself doing that, I never find myself doing that in a moment. I always just later, I go, oh, that was terrible. They listen. Second one is it says they were actually eager to find truth. They were eager to find truth. Most of my life, when it comes to doctrine and theology and talking to someone else, if we disagree, I'm usually more eager to be right than I am to find the truth. Does that resonate at all? Like there's something within me that goes, I've known this my whole life, you gotta be wrong, so I don't even wanna listen to your side. Let me just tell you what I'm saying, and then I just, I wanna be proven right, and there's a pride thing that wells up in everything. But let me ask you a question. One day when we stand before God, what's gonna be more important, that we were right or that we found the truth? Oh man, I think one day we're gonna stand before God and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're just gonna go, oh man, we were just all off so much on a lot of things. And I just, you know, I don't, this is just my opinion. I think a lot of it is going to be about how we lived the journey and how we disagreed or how we agreed or how we lived among one another, whether or not we truly loved. And, you know, but they listened. They, it says they received the message. It says that they were eager to find the truth. And, and it says, I, I think this goes hand in hand with the next thing because they examined the scriptures. They looked at it. I think we have fallen into a church culture in which we hear it and we trust it, and so we just start believing it. And we rarely crack open our own Bibles and start looking at the Scripture. And even if we do, we rarely break it down and go, I wonder what the context or the history is of the Scriptures, and look at a reference or look at a commentary. They examine the Scripture. I, I think that's a challenge to all of us. It will help us. It will help you understand the areas you don't understand what God is doing you could trust his word. Dig into it. Get in there. Let the spirit move. Let the spirit tell you, yeah, you're wrong. Yeah, you're right. Let it affirm you. Let it, let it direct you. They examined the scripture. Then number four, the result was that they believed. That's a whole lot different than they got jealous and started a mob, right? <laughs> there's a, there's, it's a workshop in finding truth. I'm thinking about where I'm going to go here. I got two options. 
And I'm not going to tell you because... Um, I think in order for us to really understand where we're going to come at something, I don't know, maybe there's an issue, maybe there's some doctrine or theology you're dealing with, you're struggling with, and you don't really know where to stand, or maybe you do know where you stand, but it seems like there's other people that disagree with you. I think it's really important that, first of all, we we ask the question, why do I believe what I believe? Like, why is that? Like, really, that's an honest... If our number one goal, if we could come to the point where we say, hey, I want to really know the truth, and I trust that God's big enough to convey the truth to me, um, why do I believe what I believe? And I think we have to look back to um, how we were raised and what we have adopted versus what we have studied and what we have learned, what we have experienced, because experience is very real. The word knowledge many times in Scripture is the word experience, not head knowledge, right? Right? And so we need to ask the question, why do we believe what we believe so that we can understand maybe even where there is some biasness that we have that keeps us from fully understanding something else? Um, how many of you, I'm not going to ask, I don't want to name an issue because I don't want anybody, I don't want to get kind of pigeonholed into one idea, but how many of you have ever had a, a strong view on something spiritually that completely shifted once upon a, a time? Raise your hand. What were, without giving it away, what, what were some of the things that led you to that change? Go ahead. Okay, so the Bible, straight up. Great. What else? Huh? Experiences. You said relationships down here. What'd you say? Listening to people different than you. That's hard to do. I heard that a long time ago as a pastor. I heard that from a guy that I don't, to be honest with you, I hate it when God uses people that I don't really like to listen to to teach me stuff. Because <laughs> this guy, I'm embarrassed to tell you who he is. But he just said, as long as all you do is get in a circle of people who think the way, same way you do and act the same way you do and just balance each other off each other and affirm each other, you're never going to know if you're right. You're just, as a group, just going to go, you know. It's really important. Any sensible debate, you listen to both sides, right? Or at least both sides are expressed. What else? What else brought you to a change? Different cultures, understanding maybe a truth in a different context. That's huge. Because our perspective is limited, right? If you've ever never left America, you would, you know, wow. What else? Okay, two things were just said. One is revelation and being willing to accept it when you see, really, God really. You know the scripture in Proverbs that talks about um, that men perish for the lack of vision? A lot of pastors use that scripture to talk about, so here's my vision for the church, but that word vision in the Hebrew means revelation. Totally different. Without God's revelation, men cast off restraint, men perish, whatever it may be. That's exactly right. And, and you said maturity, right? As you get older, see things differently. You don't see things differently as you get older, do you? Oh, my gosh. I had a friend once that said, man, I'm glad they didn't write the book on me when I was 20. Right? Even with readers, right? They're magic. They're very cheap. They're very cheap at Walmart, too, but they're magic. All right, where are we going? What did I just ask? Why ever change? All right. I had a huge shift, and I'm sorry. I, I, 
I think that I should talk about this briefly because, just to be fair, even though I know this is a, a really disputable matter, but I think I want to share the posture of this. Um, I went 12 years as an adult believing you should never drink a sip of wine. I was total teetotaler. Total teetotaler. Um, and I, I did that out of just trying. I was, I was a place where I just felt like I wanted to honor God. That was the tradition I grew up in. That is, even I looked at scripture and I seen, that's where I came and I, and I landed and things. And I was there for, for a very long time. But the tragedy in that is I came I, in, a, in a moment of, of utter confession. I was so arrogant about it that whenever I looked at someone else who would, I judged them. I was, I, I was to the point where I, um, I literally would say, I'm not sure that person's saved. That's how, that's, that's how I felt. And um, it took all these things that you're saying, experiences, really digging into scripture, what Paul writes about disputable matters, um, understanding freedom in Christ, but then also understanding that scripture says anything not done in faith is a sin, that for you, if it is, and you partake, then it is, like it can be. It can be sinful. If you're convicted against it and you do it anyways, that can become a sinful thing for us, no matter what it is, right? And so that was a real struggle, but it was scripture. It was, it was listening to uh, different interpretations and other people who were, I respected. All kinds of things shaped that, um, and it changed. It, it, it shifted, and it was something, I just say that because there are a lot of things that we, how we operate and we think that we just might be wrong about, you know? And, and freedom could be on the other side of that. It could be something that ends up leading us into more, more bondage and worry. And what I, what I know, what I mark about that season of my life, it wasn't just that. It was a lot of other things, is that I was bound. My faith was not freeing to me. I was really bound in that, in, in that, that um, I was so worried about all the rules that I thought God wanted me to follow that I didn't live in freedom, and I, my, my faith was always about me, and I was never worried about what my faith meant to, in community or to other people or in the kingdom. And I think that's one of Satan's greatest tools is to keep us so focused on ourselves that we're no useful for the kingdom. So anyways, just to share that. Two promises of truth. One, Jesus says that the truth will set you free. If you hold, so this, why do we seek? His truth. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It is for freedom's sake. That's John 8. Galatians 5, Paul writes, It's for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. It's worth pursuing. The second promise is that the truth will bring fuller life. A lot of us are afraid to seek God's truth because we're afraid it's going to we're going to have to go to church more and it's going to be more miserable and all this stuff. I felt that. I was like, ah, that means I'm going to go to men's Bible study or something, you know, and like, I'm going to have to seek it. I'm going to do it. It's not going to be any fun. And, and it's a, that's a lie that when, if, if we're seeking truth for the right reasons, it results in fuller life. It's the opposite. The result is the opposite of religion's reputation. I have come, he said, that you might have life and life to the full, John 10, 10. That's his that's his problem. So how do we interpret scripture responsibly? This is, this is ultimately what I get to. I'm gonna switch gears. It's kind of a workshop thing. If you have a pen, I would love for you to write this down. I think we have time to go through this real quick. How do we interpret scripture responsibly? How do we pursue Christ in his word? We're given his word for a reason. We're not left alone. We're given his word. We're given the Bible as a guide. It, it's right here. How do we... Interpret scripture 
responsibility. I think there's four ways that we need to really think through this. I don't, if, you've, if you've never thought through this, I think it's very important. Okay? First word is context. To interpret scripture in context. When we talk about context, what do we mean? Anybody? What's going on at the time it's being written? And what else? To the culture, so to the people in which it's being written. What else? Huh? Who wrote it? Why? Like, was it Paul? What was his background? What was his experiences? Why would he write something in this way? The context. Um, those are the main ones. Historical, what's going on that time. Cultural, what is he saying to the people in that time. And then also I think in context is the different kinds of writing that it is. Right? Is it a letter? Is it a, a letter of the law? Is it poetry? Is it whatever? We need to consider those things. I think it's very important that we understand when we interpret scripture that we need to interpret the truth as it related to that in that context then apply that truth to our context. When we take scripture and just apply it directly to who we are, when we're not a Levite or a Levitican priest, right, then we end up getting confused about why we shouldn't wear, you know, a T-shirt made of polyester and cotton. There's some weird rules, right? So you have to take, you have to take the truth in that context and say, what is this saying to this people for what reason in this time? Even Old Testament versus Old, Te- Old New Testament, pull that truth and then apply it, that truth today. I think that's a significant thing. That's the first thing. The second thing is, how do we interpret Scripture responsibly? Is it gospel-centered, Christ-centered? I have a friend that teaches, he says this. He says, if you teach the Old Testament in a way that would be unchanged with or without the cross, then you're not teaching it properly. Because everything about the scripture, you don't throw away the Old Testament. It's not, oh, that's the Old Testament. It's not, no. Everything about that points to the cross. It points to the Messiah. That's why it's there, right? So we need to teach scripture through the lens of the gospel, which leads into what Jason was teaching last week. So the evidences that we're doing that properly should be grace, peace, love, hope, joy, peacemaking, bridge building, freedom, love, right? Now, we have to, I think there's three ways, heart, soul, mind. Heart, is it out of love, grace, all of that? Soul, is it redemptive? See, the gospel works not just to save, but then to transform and then to restore and redeem, okay? So this gospel that works to save you and me It keeps working in our lives. That same good news is the thing that sustains you tomorrow. It's the same thing that keeps working until the end of this life, and then we see the reality of it one day before God, right? And so it keeps working. Heart, soul, and mind, even interpreting through gospel-centered lens with our rational minds. We get to use our brain. It's okay to go, does that make sense with the Jesus I know? Sometimes we forget to do that part. But I think it needs to line up with all three of those. A Christ-centered, gospel-centered interpretation. The third one then is, is through other scripture. Um, almost, I, I can't think of a scripture that I've ever seen in the Bible that you can't look at other scripture to either um, validate or to help, uh, help, help interpret its, its context. 
for us to understand why that happened. We have to interpret Scripture through other Scripture, okay? That's, that's very significant. And the reason why this is important is because we find out when we do that. Does that make sense? Do I understand what I'm talking about when I say that? The, the reason we do that, I think the number one thing I've found over the years that I discover when we do that is this. We get to understand whether or not what we are, what we are studying is a description of what is happening in that moment or it's a prescription of what God wants us to do now. When we look at scripture in context of other scripture, it helps us understand, is the Bible just describing something that's going on or is it prescribing what God desires for all of us? It's important because some scriptures are one and some scriptures are other. All right? And the last one, number four, let's just call it God's purposing or God's intent. I think the best way to describe this is you've ever, you heard the term legislative intent when you deal with the law. What is legislative intent? Anyone know? Pardon me? Almost, I think. Huh? It's when the law was written or the bill was written, what the heart of that was, what the intention of that law was. Right. It's the letter versus the heart of the law. So we have to look at Scripture, understanding God's purpose or his intent for the Scripture, not just the law of it. That's significant. Was this God's design? Again, potentially a description, or is it his desire, potentially prescription? Okay? What is his heart? What is his desire? What is his intent? As we see it through other scripture, as we see it through the lens of the gospel, as we see it through context, it's important that we do that. Here's an interesting thing. Actually, Bonner sent this to me uh, a couple weeks ago. He, was, he said, I learned a new word, a new phrase today. It's called confirmation bias. And uh, so I looked it up real quick. Science Daily said, this is confirmation bias. So this is about us. This is about us being aware of who we are and what's going on. It says, confirmation bias is the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, to interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms one's pre-existing belief or hypothesis, while giving disproportionately less consideration to alternative possibilities. It is a systematic error of inductive reasoning. So that's saying that's not a, like, smart people say that's bad reasoning. People display this bias when they gather or remember information selectively or when they interpret it in a biased way. The effect is stronger for emotionally charged issues and for deeply entrenched beliefs. People also tend to interpret ambiguous evidence as supporting their existing position. Biased search, interpretation, and memory have been invoked to explain attitude polarization. It's when a disagreement becomes more extreme even though the different parties are exposed to the same evidence. Belief perseverance, when beliefs persist after the evidence for them is shown to be false. The irrational primacy effect, when there's a greater reliance on information encountered early in a series. And what's called illusionary correlation, when people falsely perceive an association between events or situations. I do that. I do that. For those of you that I didn't lose, sorry, that was a lot. Basically, what this is saying is we have to be careful 
that we don't just slip into the, well, I've always, I learned this in Sunday school, so this has got to be exactly the truth or how it should be applied today. Sometimes it's the same truth, but it just needs to be applied different, right? But we have something within us where we are psychologically fighting ourselves to hear new information. So seeking truth is tough. And I think that's, I almost wonder if, if that's why Jesus, why Paul taught, Jesus taught so much about freedom. So that we could be freed from a space to give ourselves permission just to seek him. Without our preconceived ideas, because here's the truth. A lot of us, when we hear the word father, those aren't great feelings. And so we look at a father, an idea of God as father, and we don't think of peace and joy and forgiveness and grace and great plans. You know what I'm saying? It affects us in so many different ways. Question of truth. Do you want to know the truth or do you want to be right? Do you want to experience this freedom that Jesus taught about, that Jason taught about? Do you want to experience the fullness of life that God has for us or the best that we can conjure? I don't know. Is that rhetorical? Maybe it is. Let's just pray.